For our Old Covenant reading this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out, and when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. For our new covenant reading this morning, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through chapter 8, verse 3. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you uh, that you teach us Uh, Lord, as your people uh, through it. God, you do not leave us to wonder uh, who uh, you are or what the things you'd have us to learn. Rather, Lord, you uh, give to us um, through your scripture. uh, Lord, you have revealed to us, uh, especially in your word, uh, who you are, what you would have us to know uh, of you. Uh, Lord, and in particular, we thank you that uh, you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world, the word made flesh, um, that that we may know you Uh, Even more so, Lord, that the word uh, has dwelt among us, uh, Lord, and you have revealed uh, through your son, the Lord Jesus, uh, God himself. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray you'd help us this morning in our worship and in our time uh, this morning in consideration of these texts uh, to know you better, uh, Lord, that we may uh, glorify you and rejoice uh, in you and enjoy you forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, to you all, it's a distinct pleasure to be here uh, this morning with you, uh, to not only be able to proclaim the beauties and glories of Christ and his word to you this morning, uh, but also to be able to participate with you in Lord's Day worship as the Lord God himself ministers to us, his people. As was mentioned, my name is Derek Taylor, and I serve as one of the elders at the Shepherd's Church in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, a fellow Reformed church that's I've been ministering in the area alongside you all for the past four years or so, and I've met, had the privilege of meeting some of you at our multi-church picnic over the summer, which was a great occasion, and I look forward to being able to do that uh, more and more uh, in the years ahead. Uh, thankful to be able to be with you here again uh, and for your welcoming of myself and my family uh, this morning. As we begin this morning, uh, I'll share that my main hope uh, is to simply point us to the beauty and glory and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And in our time, hopefully as we consider this text, uh, we'll be able to really 
rejoice and celebrate uh, who he is and what he has done for us. With that, let's begin. Uh, and if you would, please keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 8-3. We'll re- read this again, because this is going to be where we're going to spend uh, our time uh, in bulk this morning, considering these few verses from the end of chapter 7 through the beginning of chapter 8. Uh, and so I will read again, uh, as we just did. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May we write it on our hearts. May he write it on our hearts by faith. So in our time today, uh, again, I want to endeavor to present two main points uh, that this text is ultimately pointing us to. And both have to do with how Matthew is comparing Jesus to the great prophet of Israel, uh, being Moses, and the law which Moses brought. Uh, Those two main points, those two sort of premises that that I really want us to come away with this morning, is that Jesus Christ is greater in substance than Moses, greater in substance than the law. And he is greater uh, in impact, greater in power uh, than these two. Many of us have the propensity or even the inclination to use things for uses other than that which they were intended. Kind of like using bubble gum and paper clips to fix electrical issues in your home. Uh, Not me, I'm not skilled enough to do things like that, but I've heard stories from people. Uh, Or turning, in our case, a warehouse into a church. uh, Or in the case of Merrimack Valley Presbyterian, an elementary school auditorium or gymnasium, whatever, uh, uh, to a church building, to a sanctuary, right? We are creative people. Uh, God has created us this way. He's created us in him, his image. He is the creator God, and we uh, are like him in this, that we are creative. We try things that maybe weren't uh, the original intent of a thing, uh, and this is a good thing. Sometimes it leads us to amazing discoveries as a people, and other times, like we'll see today, our ingenuity, uh, I think, can lead us into error, and when that happens, we can't blame the bubble gum and the paper clips for not doing a good enough job uh, at solving our electrical issues, but rather when we run into issues with how we've tried to use a thing, how we've tried to rig a thing to, to work in the way that we want it to, we need to re- return those things to their original use uh, and try to find the, the correct purpose for the things particularly that God's given to us in our passage today, uh, the things that are greater things for what we're hoping to get out of them, greater in substance and greater in power to see the results that we hope for. Now, before we can really even begin to dig into those points, understand the true meaning of this passage here in the middle of uh, Matthew's gospel, we first have to understand why Matthew chose to include it in his recounting of the life of Jesus. You know, with the way that we're approaching this today, kind of plopping ourselves into the middle of the book and hoping to find true and right meaning, we're doing ourselves a little bit of a disservice. That's a little bit harder to do that because there is so much context. Thankfully, I found out uh, middle of this week that you all have been studying the book of Matthew, and so there's not a ton of context that you don't already have uh, the privilege of having. Uh, adds to the intimidation that I'm dealing with as I come before you here teaching, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good thing that we are not operating blindly here in the gospel according to Matthew. Because uh, obviously you would never open up any other book to the middle and just start reading and presume that you'd be able to rightly interpret where the story is at. Uh, but too often, uh, as Christians, we, we approach our Bibles in this way. We hope that uh, we'll be able to get exactly the right meaning just by opening up anywhere. Uh, it would be easy for us to do that today, 
uh, pull a few little nuggets out to make us feel like we've figured out the meaning uh, of the text. Uh, and again, that's really where a lot of Bible studies go wrong. It's this kind of, what does this text mean to you uh, type of approach to our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, we could do that today and think that this is simply teaching us that Jesus can heal any disease, that he's a, he's a healer. And that's, that's the, the main and only purpose of this text. Uh, that's a true statement. Jesus is able to heal, uh, and we believe that uh, because he is God. It's just not the whole story of what's in view here in this text. I've heard it said, well, uh, it's the right doctrine, wrong text. Uh, my pastor says that often, and I think it's a great way to think about uh, this particular passage today. Uh, Jesus, again, is certainly powerful enough to heal, uh, but there's so much more being said here than that. And so if we take a moment to understand that context, uh, we can learn much more of, uh, of who he is, including why it is that he is powerful enough to heal and by what authority he does so and what exactly it is uh, that he heals us from. It's not only physical things, but he also is the one who brings us out of the estate of sin and misery and into the estate of salvation. And so again, we see that Jesus is a healer. That's pretty plain from the text, but as we dig a little deeper into the context, we see Matthew is making far greater claims in this passage. Now, in order to get that kind of greater understanding of context, we have to ask a few questions of where we are. First, we should very broadly establish the context of the entire book, right? We need to, and we do that through two things, or two ways. One, who was the intended audience of this original writing of Matthew, and then what point was Matthew trying to relate to that audience with the overall writing of the gospel? Again, very broadly establishing context first. Uh, for the sake of time, we can say very simply that Matthew's intended audience uh, is very clear given his approach and his exhaustive use of the Old Testament. Uh, and with that, we can conclude that his immediate audience, uh, again, very broadly, uh, is first century Jews. Uh, further, study of the gospel makes clear that his aim is really to demonstrate that this Jesus uh, is the Jewish nation's long-awaited Messiah. He is the, the king of Israel. He is uh, the, the Messiah of God's people. Uh, in, again, Matthew's voluminous quoting of the Old Testament is really specifically designed uh, for the hearer and for the reader uh, to see the tie between the Messiah of promise and the Christ of history. He's very clearly positioning Jesus as the king of God's people. And Often Matthew's gospel is called the kingdom gospel for this reason. It's very kingdom focused. And so our aim this morning is to arrive at that same final conclusion that the author intends for us to arrive at. Namely that Jesus of Nazareth is God, that he is the Christ, the chosen one of God, the Messiah of Israel, the true son of David, and the king of God's people. And so with that broad context, we also want to establish a more immediate context, right, with where we are in this uh, in, in Matthew's narrative. Uh, my understanding that this was something that you all looked at several months ago, so maybe if, if you bear with me as I kind of recap where we are here at the end of chapter 7. Uh, what happens immediately before this scene that we have, and what, does it have any bearing on the event that we are uh, considering? If we look again at chapter 8, verse 1, Matthew writes that when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. What was he doing up on the mountain? To understand that, we need to look at that immediate context, the pre preceding story and why Jesus was up there. And looking at chapter 7, 28 and 29 again, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus is coming down from the mountain upon the conclusion of Matthew's recounting of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the, the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. 
Matthew recounts this sermon in chapters 5 through 7 of his gospel account. And in it, uh, in this sermon, Jesus is explaining, he's expositing and shedding greater light on the law of God that was once given to Israel when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so with Matthew's intended audience being first century Jews and his goal and purpose being to show Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah, with that context in mind, given the more immediate context of the passage, uh, we see that Jesus has just completed his explanation and application of the law of God to the people as he's now descending the mountain. Uh, and with that, hopefully, we can see, start to see some of the connections and make some of the connections that Matthew's audience surely would have made. And even those who lived out this scene surely would have made. Jesus, again, is descending from the mountain following his delivery of the Sermon on the Mount, and the parallels uh, start to become clear. For some of you, that picture uh, of, of this teacher descending the mountain after this experience, if you will, with the law of God, that might remind you of another instance in the scripture of a man descending a mountain after receiving the law of God. For the first century Jewish readers and hearers, again, they absolutely would have immediately thought of the great prophet and teacher of Israel, uh, that being Moses. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, we read from it earlier, but we will look at it again in just a minute. Uh, But to summarize, Moses is up on the mountain with God and receives the ten words, the ten commandments, which God commands Moses to deliver to the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain. And this picture that Matthew's drawing of Jesus' descension of of the mountain immediately after his teaching would have certainly caused a Jewish hearer to make a connection. And so let's look at Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35 one more time, and see this instance where Moses delivers the tablets containing the law to the Israelites. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses at the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So notice the similarities here. Moses is descending from the mountain where the law was given. Jesus descended the mountain where the law was given. But also notice the difference. Moses talked with God and received his law to be delivered to the people. Jesus spoke as God. The the, the text actually tells us that he spoke with an authority that the people were not used to. They did not see uh, people speak with this level of authority. So Jesus spoke as God and delivered the law to his people directly. Again, this is a connection that Matthew's audience would certainly have made, and we must certainly make as well. We see there's something different about Moses, right, in Exodus 34, when he comes down, uh, though he doesn't know it, his face is shining because he had been in the presence of God. Moses saw the backside of his glory pass before him and he spoke with him directly and now his face 
is glowing because of it. He's wearing this experience on his face in a way. And that glowing doesn't have the people intrigued to ask Moses, you know, what happened? Where did you get that? Love the, that looks great. They, they're terrified of him, actually. It says that they're afraid to come near him in verse 30. And so God has delivered the law on the mountain to Moses to then deliver to the people, but it's too much for them to, to handle. The shining of Moses' face is a picture of the law and its substance to them. The shining of his face immediately makes them uncomfortable. And why is this? Why are they uncomfortable by the shining of his face? It's, again, it's a, it's a picture to them of God's perfect law, the substance of the, that stands behind that law, and it's too much for them to bear. It's the holiness and glory of God reflected, and it's, it's condemning them in their sin. They feel the weight of it over them. There's no glory coming from Moses, per se. Uh, it's actually, it's only his face. It's just reflecting the glory of God. He, his face is the moon reflecting the light of the sun, and yet it's too much for the people to look at because they know they won't stand when the glory is fully revealed and what stands behind that shining face. They're afraid because they've seen the remnants of a reflection of the glory of God, and they know that they will not measure up. The standard of the law of God is perfection, and that perfection is so glorious that Israel can't even bear to look at the shadow that stands before them. And while Moses mediated this relationship between God and his people on an ongoing basis, we saw in verses 34 and 35, he continued to veil his face, but then he would go in to speak with the Lord and he'd unveil his face, but he would continually have to veil his face uh, before the people. Uh, Even in this mediation, what we find in the story of Israel is that this was not going to be enough to keep God's people from falling short. Israel would prove through the centuries that the law was too much for them to uphold, too much for them to keep. The standard was perfection, and they were not able to keep it. And why was this not enough? Why was the law not enough to keep the people of Israel faithful to their covenant God? Moses was faithful and consistent to meet with God and tell the people what God had said, but it was not enough even to keep him from sinning before God. And why is this? It's because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All fail to keep the law. And so we know that the law in and of itself, we know this even from our own experience, the law in and of itself is not enough to save. It is not enough to bring us out of that state of sin and misery. Knowledge of the law is not enough to give life to us, and it certainly was not enough to give life to Israel, because that was not the purpose of the law. Right? That was not the purpose that the law was given for. God did not give it that it would bring us out of that estate. He gave it for a different reason. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The law is not the substance that makes perfect those who draw near. The law is not the thing that does it. The law is actually a shadow of the substance. It's a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things. Adding to that, Galatians 3, 19 through 24, asks the question directly. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. 
For if a law had been, give, had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. And so we see that the law was given by God for a purpose. It is to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, Paul says, but not for the purpose of finding life in it through our obedience because God did not give the law to impart life. Paul says that if God wanted to, he could have actually given the law to impart life, but that was not the reason that God gave the law. It was merely a shadow. It is not the substance of life. And that life meaning life with God. And now we contrast that truth, the truth that the law of God delivered by Moses is not enough to give life or to, to save us, to, to bring us out of the estate of sin and misery. Uh, we, and we would contrast even the response of the people of Israel to Moses, their fear of him, they're terrified of him, with the response of the people that we see in Matthew 7 and 8. We see after Jesus' teaching of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, not that people were afraid of him, Though they were astonished, certainly by the authority with which he taught, but rather that great crowds followed him. And further, we see this leprous man, who would have been considered unclean, according to Jewish law and biblical standards, does not, he doesn't hide from the face of Jesus, but instead he approaches him and submits to his will, believing that only he, only Jesus, was capable of healing him and making him clean, both physically before man and spiritually before God. And it's not that Jesus is teaching a different law, by no means. But that Jesus is exemplifying something to them. He is showing something to these people that is different uh, than the law, not in quality, but in a, a difference in his substance. He is, or he is revealing more, I should say. Uh, there's, a, there's a greater revelation coming with the teaching of Jesus uh, and the law in Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew's telling his audience here that Jesus is greater than the law because he is not the shadow. He's not merely the shadow. He is the substance of it. Uh, the shadows all point to him. Right? He is even the shining face on Moses. Right? He is the law. He is the substance, and he is greater than what the law written could give to Israel. He is greater than Moses as a great prophet and teacher. Uh, he is, Jesus is still yet greater uh, then Moses, and so the people of Israel, the Jews, should embrace this Jesus as their teacher uh, in the substance of the law, the righteousness of God. He is, in fact, the one to whom Moses even spoke on the mountain and spoke of in his writing. Again, because Jesus is greater than the law. He is the perfect righteousness of God. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 says, Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, 
if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Just as the builder of a house is greater than the house he built, Jesus is a greater prophet and high priest to God's people than even Moses. And what Matthew and the author of Hebrews are saying to their hearers, again, both first century Jewish audiences mainly, is that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because he's greater than Moses. Moses and the law were a shadow, a type of what was to come, uh, the fullness being the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is greater than Moses and the law in substance, we also see that his impact, his power displayed upon the people of God is far greater. We've touched on this uh, a little bit already, but again, we go to our text to see that where Moses and the law are unable, Jesus is able, and his power is sufficient to heal and cleanse even the leper and to heal and cleanse us. The Apostle Paul says well in Romans 8, 1 through 4, better than I could, so I'll read it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." In Christ, God has provided what the law could not. He has provided righteousness. He has fulfilled all righteousness. Because Christ's righteousness is enough, such that the requirements of the law are fulfilled for us, for those who believe, we are no longer as unclean lepers before God. Jesus' perfectly obedient life is so great, in fact, that it is enough to provide for all of God's people the righteous requirements of God's law that we might be adopted as sons and daughters and can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient in all we need. His righteousness is enough that we can know the Father through him. Moses and the law, we're powerless to do that. Uh, we can, again, those things can point us to the greater thing, uh, but then those things in and of themselves are not able uh, to do that. They are not powerful to, point, to bring us to God. Uh, we in, our, in ourselves are powerless to do this. We cannot bring ourselves to God. But Jesus' power has no limits. He is able. And in him we find our healing through his righteousness credited to us. If we make the Pharisaical error, which is the common error that we see among the Jews in the first century, particularly that Jesus is ministering against, teaching against, uh, we make this error to rely upon our own ability to keep the law as our means by which we come to God, uh, then we will stand condemned. Only those who are in Christ, as Paul says, will avoid the condemnation that comes with living by the law of sin and death. And this is what is really, from my perspective, so incredibly glorious about this passage in Matthew. Again, working against these, these serious errors of the time, Jesus is showing us that he is the lawgiver on the mountain. And that that lawgiver is now coming down to save his people. And that he is willing and he is able to do so. I find that word to be such a reminder to me that there are no extraneous words in the scripture. God does not waste his words. But even that response to the leper, I am willing, as he comes down the mountain, is a picture to us of God's willingness to save 
in sending his son down the mountain, as it were, to redeem his people. He is willing and he is able to do it. And he is not saving us based on our obedience, but by his grace and through faith. Now, we do have to be careful, obviously, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater here uh, when it comes to the law. We're not antinomians here, which means anti-law. We are uh, theonomous. I would argue that all people are theonomous because we all uh, are ruled and regulated by who God is, who we perceive God to be. Certainly Christians, we are regulated by God and his law. He has established a moral law, and we believe that it is right uh, to follow that. And we have to remember that the law is good. It's just not good when it's used for the wrong purposes. And that's what Jesus is, is, Jesus is teaching against here. It's what Paul teaches against in his letters. He's not saying to throw the law away, right? Again, in Galatians 3, he says yeah, it's expressly the opposite. It's just that it must be used for the right purposes, uh, to point us to Christ, to be a rule of life, and to help us to know uh, and follow after God. It's not meant to give life. It's meant to point us to life in Christ. And so as we come... Uh, this morning to our conclusion, I want to uh, return to our text uh, one more time uh, and, and kind of walk through these connections uh, again. Again, chapter 7, verse 28 through 83 of Matthew's Gospel. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The hearers of this story and the readers of it and those who lived it would have known uh, that Matthew was presenting Jesus as greater in authority and power than Moses. Jesus is expounding and teaching on the word of God in ways that no one had ever done before, not even Moses and he is, he is healing uh, and exercising his power over sickness and uncleanness in ways that even Moses was incapable of in his day. Matthew wants his Jewish audience uh, and for us to know that the man Moses, whom they saw as their greatest prophet, was in fact subordinate to this God-man, Jesus. Moses had received the law from God on the mountain, and now this God-man delivered the law himself to the people on the mountain. And further, Matthew made clear that, it, that this Jesus was sufficient in providing the cleansing that we are all in need of. The leper was surely cleansed in a physical manner, just as we who are in Christ are cleansed of our unrighteousness by him, because his righteous fulfillment of the law is enough to free us from the law of sin and death and all the condemnation that comes with it. Where the law alone is not enough, the grace of Christ and his righteousness is. And so a practical point from this text, I think, is to remember your baptism. God's covenant sign of cleansing to his people. Right? By faith, he has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And so it's important that we cling to that promise. We remember our baptism. We walk with God in holiness of life. We don't forget that all is owed to Christ for his grace and kindness, and we can't let our current obedience cause us to forget that all is of grace. Because we can be tempted to do that. We can be tempted to think that because we obey now, we can start to believe that we are now in this kind of uh, quid pro quo relationship with our Heavenly Father, and this is not the case. Uh, All is owed to grace. All is owed to Christ. And so the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the great prophet and teacher of Israel, the Holy One 
of God and it points us to the reality that he is God in the flesh. John 1, 14 and 16 through 18 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What Moses and the law were unable to do because they were not meant to do it, God has accomplished by sending his son into the world. And in Christ, God went himself down the mountain after giving the law to accomplish what the law could not. The grace of God towards sinners is revealed in Jesus Christ. He is greater than Moses. He is the authoritative prophet, teacher, healer, and mediator for God's people. He is enough and he is sufficient because in him alone do we find uh, the satisfaction of all of the righteous requirements of the law to produce our cleansing. And in him alone do we find a God who descends the mountain for us. He is truly the Holy One of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us. He has put on flesh that he would redeem his people. And so we'll close this morning uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as the, the Apostle Paul really summarizes, I think, what we explored this morning uh, and the ways in which Christ uh, is br- brings uh, to bear what the ministry of Moses and the law pointed to, what they were shadows of. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 18. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Comparing the ministry of Jesus and what he, how this shadow was glorious, the law and Moses glorious, but comparatively so to what they point to, it might as well have been nothing. Uh, there might as well have been no glory there at all because it's so far surpassed. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As we look unto Christ and we trust in him that he is 
the substance of these things. He is this, what the shadows pointed to. And in him and in him alone is the power to give life and to redeem God's people. The Bible teaches us that we can look, into, look unto him uh, and believe uh, that he, God is transforming us from glory to glory through his spirit at work in us. Uh, and may our faces even shine like Moses's as we behold our God and the world around us uh, would be compelled to, to understand more. That perhaps they'll be like the Israelites uh, and be compelled to say, stay away. Uh, but may we behold God and believe on him and trust in him and his son whom he has sent, the fullness of all things and all righteousness. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me as we close? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.